Father, even as we, uh, we gather this morning, Lord, we remind ourselves that there would uh, be no reason to gather if it were not for this morning a couple of thousand years ago. And so, Father, once more, uh, we rest in the reality that our salvation has been won for us, not as a result of anything that we could do, but entirely because of what your son did. And the proof of that is the empty grave. And so, Lord, as we meditate on perhaps a familiar topic or concept, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to your word. I pray that each one of us here would have just a greater understanding, a new understanding, a fresh understanding of what it all means in our lives 2,000 years later. So bless your word as it goes forth, we pray in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, and thanks, by the way, for like squeezing in and all that kind of stuff. I know there's people out in the halls. Uh, we apologize that you couldn't get in here. Uh, and, and there's people probably watching on, uh, online, and we miss you guys. Hope to see you soon. We're going to start today in Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, there are some available in the seats in front of you. But if you brought your own Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to read uh, the opening 12 verses of that particular chapter. It says this, Now on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. This is referring to uh, the women, some of the disciples of Jesus. They were coming to prepare his body more thoroughly for burial. And it says they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling white apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Don't you remember how he told you while, you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and then on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus by themselves. And he went home marveling or wondering at what had happened. Well, I, I've selected, obviously, it's not hard to figure out why I picked that particular passage on this particular day. But I've selected that because in, in a lot of ways, I think, when we think about the resurrection of Christ, I think that in some ways it's, it's too good to be true. It feels like a Hollywood movie where, you know, you have the good guy and the good guy does his things and you fall in love in a sense with the good guy and you're following him along and then all of a sudden things take a drastic turn, it goes in another direction and the good guy, you know, gets injured or hurt or in this case killed, but to ensure that we all leave the theaters happy, 
everything works out in the end. And in some ways, we look at this story of the resurrection and we think, you know, the story is too good to be true. Things don't work out that perfectly in real life. And yet here is Jesus, the hero. He rises up on the scene. He's abandoned and he's betrayed. He's killed. But all is well because he comes back in the end and he rises from the dead. I've said this many times that the cross was no accident. And in the same way, the resurrection is no accident as well. The resurrection is not some, well, that sure worked out. I didn't think it was going to, but it did. The resurrection was the plan of God, even as the cross was the plan of God. The Apostle Peter, he said this. He said, Jesus indeed was foreordained. He was planned of God before the foundation of the world was even laid. And so before the account that we have in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord, the Father, knew about Luke chapter 24. It was foreordained. It was the plan of God. And as Peter goes on to say, it was manifest to us in these days. The cross of Jesus Christ was the very reason why he came to the earth. Now, he came and he did a lot of things. He did miracles, and people were amazed, and people were drawn to them, and people were helped because of those miracles. He did great teachings. And people were really uh, blown away by them. And even today, people that aren't, don't even consider themselves a Christian look at the teachings of Jesus and are impressed by them. And so he did the great teachings. He did the great miracles. He was a kind man. He loved people well. But none of those were the primary reason why Jesus came. The reason why Jesus came was to go to the cross and to come out of a grave three days later. Notice again that passage I read. Notice what the angel said. They said to these women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. And then they said this. The angel said this to them. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified? When Jesus was in Galilee, he was fine. Galilee was 90 miles away. He was fine. They weren't going to take him there. They weren't going to kill him there. But he knew that he would go to Jerusalem and he would be taken. And he knew that when he was in Jerusalem, he would be crucified. And as the passage says, he knew he would rise again. The angel said to the women, don't you remember what he said back in Galilee? The passage that they're referring to is Matthew chapter 16. It's a wonderful chapter. I've just finished my personal devotional time in Matthew chapter 16 and was once more encouraged by it. That's the passage in which Jesus has taken the disciples away. So Galilee is 70, 80 miles, 90 miles away from Jerusalem. Another hour or so north of that, today by vehicle, another hour or so north of that is a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus took his 12 apostles, those disciples of his, away to Caesarea Philippi. It was a retreat of sorts, just us. No crowds. We're going to go into a Gentile land. I want to take some time with you, and I want to talk to you. And while he was there and he was ministering to them, this is about a month before Jesus would be crucified, while he was ministering to them, Jesus asked them a question. And the question that he asked them was this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man, he used that many times to refer to himself. And so we say, who do people say that I am? This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And it's important for you to understand that Jesus isn't trying to fish for a compliment. So what are the people saying about me? That's not what he's doing. He's asking him that question because he wants to get to a second question, 
a follow-up question that is even more important. So he's not fishing for a compliment. He wants to get to this follow-up question. He says, who do people say that I am? If you look at Matthew 16, verse 15, the follow-up question is this, and who do you say that I am? And that is the more important question. Because who others say about Jesus, or what others say about Jesus, ultimately doesn't matter to you. It's what you say about Jesus that will make an eternal difference. Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, all right, what are other people saying about me? Very good, thank you. Now what do you say about me? And it seems that there was a little bit of pause in the answers until finally Peter speaks up. Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now that word Christ is a word that we hear a lot, but it, it may actually be a word that many of us are not really familiar with what it means. Some of us probably, possibly even assume it's Jesus's last name. There's Jesus Christ, and Christ would be his last name. And in reality, in that day, they really didn't go by last names. If they had a last name, it would have been the son of the dad's name or from this town. So Jesus' last name would have been something like Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the son of Joseph or something to that effect. So Christ is not his last name. The word Christ comes from a Greek word. It's Christos. You can see Christ right in there. And it's a word that means anointed one. In the Old Testament, which, which wasn't written in Greek, it was written primarily in Hebrew, the word that means anointed one is translated in our English languages as Messiah. And so the word Christ and the word Messiah both mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. And by that, what is meant is the one that is chosen by God to accomplish his purpose the one that is chosen by God to accomplish his purpose. Now, an anointed one could be the king in Israel, and when that person was inaugurated into that particular position, they would come together, they would say a prayer over that person, and they would pour oil upon his head. He was, not motor oil, uh, olive oil. They would pour olive oil over his head, and that person would be the anointed one for a specific purpose. If it was the king, it was to govern the people. When a new high priest came in and began to lead the people, they would, a prayer would be said over that person, the olive oil would be poured over their head, and they would be the anointed one for a specific purpose. In this case, to lead the people spiritually. And rightfully, they would be known as the anointed one. Small a, small o, the anointed one. Interesting, as you make your way through the Old Testament, there are hundreds of references to another anointed one, capital A, capital O. So even as you have a king who's been anointed, and even as you have a priest or a prophet who has been anointed, it was still looking forward to another anointed one. Not small a, small o, but capital A and capital O a greater anointed one. And in the Old Testament, that one was referred to as the Messiah. In the New Testament, as the Christ. And so for hundreds of years, the Jewish people 
we're looking to an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ that would come. Sadly, in ancient Israel, that meant to them deliverance from centuries of captivity or oppression. That's who they were looking for, a deliverer who would come in politically, get rid of the Romans, get rid of the Babylonians, get rid of the Assyrians, whatever people had come and conquered and were uh, oppressing the Jewish people, they were looking for an anointed one, one finally who will come and throw off those foreign rulers. The New Testament, however, reveals that Jesus came to bring a much better deliverance, a deliverance from the power and the penalty of sin. This is what the New Testament tells us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke chapter 19 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We learn in Mark chapter 2, On hearing this, Jesus told them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus' anointing, and again, remember, that's the one designated by God to accomplish a particular purpose. Jesus' anointing in his first coming was not to set up an earthly throne from which he would rule the world. His anointing was to restore man to right relationship with God, right relationship that had been tainted because of man's sin. And so when Peter declared to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one of God, Peter rightly discerned that Jesus was God's anointed one, that he was God's Christ. But in his thinking, he did not yet understand what it was that Jesus was anointed for. Because in Peter's thinking, he's going to go set up a throne somewhere. And so if we go back to that Matthew 16 passage, you'll notice what Jesus then does. So he hears from Peter, well, you're the Christ. Peter, or excuse me, Jesus then goes and explains what exactly that means. He corrects Peter's thinking. Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go down to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Now that is the complete opposite of what Peter and the other apostles and all the Jewish people for 2,000 years, 4,000 years had been expecting. And so it's no wonder in the passage that Peter actually will pull Jesus aside. Jesus just said the statement that he did, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Peter pulls him aside and and says in so many words, you shouldn't talk like that. May it never be. Don't say things like that. And of course, Peter was the one that needed to be corrected and rebuked, which Jesus goes on to do. And so I come back to the statement that I made earlier. The cross of Christ was no accident. It wasn't as if things swung wildly out of control. And how do we get here? Jesus is on a cross. It wasn't like some twist in a Hollywood movie that you never expected coming. It was the plan of God. This is what God had foreordained from the beginning of time. 
The cross was no accident, and neither was the resurrection. The resurrection is not some unexpected happy ending. Jesus made it very, very clear that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And so even as the cross is the foreordained plan of God, so too is the resurrection. We go back to that passage I opened with today in Luke chapter 24. Notice again what the angels say there. They said, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? If we go back to that Matthew 16 passage and the chapter that follows it, chapter 17, you'll see that on three occasions in the next hour or whatever of the time Jesus is interacting with the disciples, on three subsequent occasions, he will reference his resurrection. Matthew 16, 21. And on the third day, uh, he will be raised. Chapter 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Chapter 17, verses 22 and following, the Son of Man, Jesus said, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. The resurrection should not have surprised anyone. If Jesus' disciples had truly been listening, they should have gathered outside of the tomb before sunup and waited for the show. But they hadn't been listening. They hadn't been paying attention. It had been kept from them. Their prejudices that Jesus is going to be the king of the world, I think, had blinded them to hearing what it was he had actually been saying. But he couldn't have been more clear. He would be turned over to wicked men, killed, and then three days later rise again. And yet somehow they missed it. And again, I think it's because they were too busy focusing their attention on kingdoms and rulers focusing their attention on who among them would be the greatest in the kingdom. You remember that debate that they had? And who would be able to sit or allowed to sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand? And so Jesus had been repeatedly speaking to them about the most significant event in the history of the world. And it seems that it went right by them as if it was of little consequence. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of great consequence. This is what Paul would write about it later. He said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is crucial to salvation. In another place, the Apostle Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That tells us that our new life in Christ, remember 2 Corinthians 5.17 refers to those that are believers in Jesus as new creations. The old has passed away. All things became new. According to Peter, that's dependent upon Jesus' resurrection. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our sin, our transgressions, and he was raised up to our justification. 
Justification may be a word you're not familiar with. An easy way to remember it is just as if you never sinned. Jesus was raised to newness of life for your justification, so that when God looks down upon your life, he sees one just as if they had never sinned. According to the Apostle Paul there in Romans 4, that is directly tied into the resurrection. The penalty of our sin, which is death and judgment, Romans 6.23 tells us that. The penalty of our sin was paid on the cross, and the empty tomb is proof that that payment has been received. And so for those of us that believe, when God the Father looks down upon our lives, he no longer sees the sin that once separated us from him, but rather he sees us just as if we had never sinned. And if the, if the Apostle Paul is to believed, to be believed, and I think he is, if the Apostle Paul is to be believed, all of that is because of the resurrection. I love what Paul said in some of the closing words to the Corinthians. He said this, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no more clear demonstration of that victory than Jesus' resurrection. There's one final verse I'll, I'll draw your attention to, emphasizing the importance of the resurrection. Also from the book of 1 Corinthians, it says this, Corinthians, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Let's put it in another way. Then your faith is a waste of time. If Christ were not raised, there would be no reason to do what it is that we're doing this morning and each Sunday when we gather together. But he has been raised. The disciples missed what Jesus was telling them about his coming resurrection. They saw it as if it was of little consequence, when in fact, as I said earlier, it was of great consequence. And I suspect there are many people celebrating Easter in the world today, or earlier today, or later today, and maybe even some among us here, that may be missing it as well. But the resurrection is of great consequence. The resurrection witnesses to the immense power of God. If God exists, and if he created the universe and has power over the universe, then he alone has the power to raise the dead. And if he does not have such power, then he's not worthy of our faith and our worship. In resurrection, resurrecting Jesus from the grave, God reminds us of his absolute sovereignty over life and death. That's pretty important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is also important because it validates exactly who Jesus claimed to be, namely the Son of God and the Messiah. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, there were some religious leaders, they approached him, and they demanded from him. Now, it's, it's so interesting. This is Matthew 16. Just at the end of Matthew 15, it talks about like scores of miracles that Jesus had just done. It's just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Everybody's coming and miracles are occurring. Like the first words of the next chapter, it says, then the scribes and the Pharisees came demanding from him a sign. Well, where have you been? I, I've just been doing all these things. 
And so they demanded, prove that you're the son of God. I want a sign that you're the son of God. Jesus' response to them was this. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Now, about a chapter or two earlier, Jesus explained what the sign of Jonah was. So they had a context. They understood. We may not understand. The context, Matthew chapter 12, he said this. For just as Jonah... Old Testament, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So according to Jesus, his resurrection was the sign that would prove who it was that he said that he was, that he was the Messiah. Now, of course, anybody can say anything that they want. I can make all kinds of claims about myself or whatever, but at some point you got to step up and you got to demonstrate that and you have to prove that. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He said he would rise again, and he did rise again. Which brings us to the third reason why the resurrection is crucial to the fulfillment of the foreordained plan of God, and that is because it attests to the sinless character and the divine nature of Jesus. When a man or woman dies, their body is laid in the ground, and gradually, or in the case of cremation, suddenly, their body sees corruption. It deteriorates. It returns to dust. Not so with the Lord. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says this. It's a prophetic prophecy. Um, psalm in the old testament it says for you will not abandon my soul to the grave and you will not allow your holy one to see corruption jesus fulfilled that his body did not deteriorate in the grave but he rose again and ascended on high why is the resurrection important it proves who jesus is it demonstrates that god accepted jesus's sacrifice it shows that god has the power over life and death And it guarantees that those of us who believe in Christ will not remain dead ourselves, but will be resurrected to eternal life as well. I've quoted a number of different scriptures. Let me quote one more for you. The Apostle Paul, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. I read this earlier. And you are still in your sins. And then he says this, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The context of that statement, If Christ wasn't raised, you will never be raised. And anybody you know that has died and gone on before you has not been raised. And that is a very hopeless thought, isn't it? Just to know that this is it. This life we live and the trials we go through and the good things that we experience, this is it. There's no hope in that. And increasingly, we live in a secular world. By secular, I mean non-religious Increasingly, people, they're they're born, they're raised, they live their life, and they die with very little thought to eternity, with very little thought to God. And increasingly, I I, I don't think it's coincidence, we live in a world that is very hard to have hope in. Just think about the last couple of years. Certainly, COVID has contributed to that sense of hopelessness. In just a little over two years, over six million people have died, so we're told, including nearly one million in the United States as a result of a virus. Even now, two years later, 
there are continued resurgence of new variants that threaten to lock things down again. That's a pretty hopeless feeling that I, I, I have. And then we have the war in Europe and the daily questions as to whether this is the start of World War III and whether our country should help and how we should help and if we do help, what's gonna be the consequences on our nation? How about inflation and the economy? Inflation which is approaching 9%, gas prices in some places over $7 a gallon. We have the mental health crisis that is facing our nation, particularly among the young people of our nation. We have a drug problem in our nation that according to statistics, 20% of our population over the age of 12 is either using illegal drugs or misusing prescription drugs. For the last 20 years, our nation has seen, on average, 75,000 deaths a year because of drug overdoses. That's over 1.5 million people gone in the last two decades due to the drug epidemic facing our nation. We're a nation with gender confusion issues. We're comprised of a populace that is told we should care more about the spotted owls than babies in the womb. And the if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that if our hope is primarily dependent upon anything in this world, we will be let down. Because even those with the best of intentions toward us will let us down. And they'll do so either deliberately or inadvertently by not doing something we expected or not saying something we expected or doing something we didn't expect or saying something we didn't expect. And so not enough people will wear their masks and the virus is gonna spread or too many people will wear their masks and our freedoms will be eroded. Our investments will be up and everything that uh, we need of them to be when we hit that particular age or, uh, or they'll be down and then it won't be enough there. And so I can't look at my bank account and think, well, there's my hope because who knows what it's gonna be like in 15 years or 20 years when I'm gonna need it. We expect a foreign dictator to play by the rules, only to discover that in that dictator's mind, there are no rules. No wonder we are facing a mental health crisis in our nation. No wonder we are a confused nation. No wonder there is a sense that the sense of hopefulness that things will always get better is rapidly dwindling in our society. The disciples of Jesus knew that sense of hopelessness. But unlike us, it was not one that just sort of gradually permeated our society over the last few years, but for them it was one that came all at once. One day, they were getting ready to crown Jesus as their king, and the next day he was beaten beyond human recognition and hung up on a cross where he died. And just like that, their hopes were gone. We read of their hard attitude in Luke's gospel. Like the passage that we began, this also is in Luke chapter 24. It took place on the first resurrection Sunday. This one is a little further along in that chapter. It's the account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now Emmaus was a city just a little bit outside of Jerusalem. And so these guys had come into Jerusalem. They were heading back home for the evening. And as they walked, they talked amongst themselves. 
It picks up in Luke 24, verse 13. It says, now that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened, referring to the crucifixion. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, drew near and walked along with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so he's just some guy that is walking along with them. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are you guys talking about? What's this conversation each of you are holding with one another as you walk? And they stopped. I find this interesting. They stopped and they looked at him. Looking sad, it tells us. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only one? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It would be as if we were walking along and we were talking about the pandemic. And somebody walking with us, what are you guys talking about? Where have you been the last two years? You have no idea what we're talking about. They were talking about the, the crucifixion of Christ, and Jesus like, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, yo, man, you're the only guy in all Jerusalem that doesn't know? And he said to them, what things? He's fun. He's playing with them here. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, notice that was, a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priest and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And then this one here, verse 21, for we had hoped that he was the one, capital O, remember, the anointed one? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have, hope, have happened. These disciples, they said, we had hoped that he was God's Messiah. But of course, we no longer do because he was killed. We had hope. They were hopeless. Even as so many in our society have become or are becoming hopeless in our day. May I say this? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what goes on in our society, you never have to wrestle with a sense of hopelessness in this life. And the reason is, is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, there is hope beyond the grave. Now, I certainly don't want to die from COVID or get hit by a car. I, you know, of course not. But even if I do, there is hope beyond the grave for me, and I would hope, my loved ones, I would hope they care about my, my passing. And so whether Jesus returns, as he said he would do, or we live out our days and he returns at, toward the end of them, we can have hope beyond the grave because our hope is not in this earth. Our hope is in heaven. And yes, the economy may fail us, but the Lord will never fail us. Our politicians and our elected officials may miss the mark, may miss the mark, but Jesus will never miss the mark. And so it is true, in this world we will have trouble. We will have trials, we will have tribulation. But Jesus emphatically declared this wonderful truth 
in that he said he has overcome this world. In John 16, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trials. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And because he has, the follower of Christ can always find hope, even in a world that is increasingly becoming less hopeful. Paul told us, that there is power in the resurrection of Christ. There's a power that we can know. There's a power that we can walk in. There's a power that enables us to walk in the newness of life. Paul said this, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. There's a power in the resurrection. There's a power to love, as we previously were unable to love. There's a power to forgive, as we previously were unable to forgive others that have wronged us. There's a power to resist temptation, as we were previously unable to resist. The entire direction of our lives, here on the earth and eternally in the heavens, is completely changed because of the resurrection. And so may you be reminded today of just how consequential the empty tomb outside of Jerusalem is. I'll close today, no amens please, with a passage that's been on my mind a bit. It's a passage that's found in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. It actually records in that Gospel the very first recorded words of Jesus. Now, the background is this. Some of you know, some of you do not. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. He came about six months or so before Jesus, and he had actually made quite a name for himself. A lot of people were interested in who John was and what John had to say, and they were going out in the wilderness to hear from him and to be baptized by him. He had become quite a figure. And yet, despite being such a well-known preacher, John was very clear with those that came to hear from him or to be baptized by him. John was very clear that the one, capital O, that people should be following was not him, but actually another. And this is what John said, John chapter 1. It's a few different verses. It was during that time that John declared to his disciples, I am not the Christ. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord. There is one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John made it very clear. I'm not the Christ. Now the next day in the story, a little bit later on in John chapter 1, John is with his disciples and he sees Jesus walking by at a little bit of a distance. And he says to his disciples, he said, you see that man right there? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one of whom I said, after me comes one who is preferred before me. He's the one that I was talking about when I said, I can't, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Behold the Lamb of God. The disciples of John took that in, okay. The passage goes on, John chapter 1. It says, now the next day, again, John was standing with his disciples and he looked at Jesus, who was off in the distance a bit, as he walked by and he said, 
behold, the Lamb of God. And finally, John's disciples got it. They got that they should stop following John and start following Jesus. And so they do. They pick up and they go and they're, they're just walking behind the Lord. And this brings us to the first recorded words in the Gospel of John of Jesus. They're not very profound. I'll translate them in our kind of vernacular. Jesus says, what do you want? That's what he says to him. What do you want? Maybe it was a little less of a tone and that he's not from like New Jersey or New York City or something. But he says, what are you seeking? And these disciples are like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, where are you staying? None of your business. Jesus doesn't say that. But he says, what are you seeking? And it's a wonderful question. John was not the anointed one. Jesus was. John was not the Lamb of God that would pay the penalty for sin. Jesus was. And so Jesus starts right with them and says to them, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for? Now, Jesus had never met them, and yet he asked them that question. I said earlier, one of the most important questions is, who do you say that I am? Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Well, this one is probably a close second. What are you seeking? What do you want? And again, Jesus never met these people before, and yet he knows that they are seeking. And the reason why he knows that they're seeking is because every one of us is seeking. Every one of us is running after something. Every one of us, either externally, we're seeking wealth, we're seeking fame, we're seeking glory, we're seeking houses or cars or money or whatever it might be. Every one of us is seeking after something. And internally, every one of us is seeking things like peace or rest, not just a physical rest. I just want to stop fighting. We're seeking peace, we're seeking rest, we're seeking comfort, we're seeking ease. And the reason why that is, when your life is very different from that person's life over there, is because that's what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship with God. And when we finally are in right relationship with God, a peace can enter into our hearts. The Bible says it is a peace that passes understanding. When we're finally in right relationship with God, a rest can enter into our hearts. I don't have to keep striving to find something. I found it. I don't have to keep striving for God to be pleased with me. He is pleased with me. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what Christ has done. The righteousness of Christ has become my own. Remember that word justification? Just as if I've never sinned. There is no separation any longer between the follower of Christ and God because of the work that Christ has done. Why do we seek these things? Because that's what we were created for. The problem is sin hinders that. Sin hinders relationship. If you sinned against somebody in this room, they're probably sitting on that side while you're on this side. And maybe they've forgiven you, but they've got their eye on you. They're watching you because you've hurt them before. Sin hinders relationship. And it most especially hinders relationship with a holy God. Each one of us has sinned. And whether you've done it a million times, I, I didn't want to specifically look at this fella, um, 
or just one time. You're a relatively nice person, and you don't bother people, and you've only sinned once in your life. Whether you've sinned a million times or just one time in your life, that sin or those sins separate you from a holy God. And here's the bad news. There's nothing you can do about it. Because even if you pledge to clean up your life now, you've still got a whole bunch of mess behind you that has separated you from a holy God. There is nothing that we can do. But there is something that God did. And I'll tell you, if that weren't the case, I wouldn't waste my time being here. I'd be on a beach somewhere in Florida enjoying the sun. There's nothing we can do, but there's something God did. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us this. It says, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Jesus himself declared about himself and his coming. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And these words here, we don't quote them a lot in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son into the world to deal with the condemnation that should have been ours. Jesus was the gift of God on your behalf. And as with any gift, it has to be received. And it has to be made your own. It doesn't matter how nice a gift somebody purchases for you. If you keep that gift wrapped over in a corner, or even if you unwrap the gift, find out what's in it and tuck it away in some closet, that gift does you no good. The gift is meant to be taken. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be applied to your life. It's meant to be experienced by you. And so this morning, as a lot of us have gathered, maybe there are some with us here today that don't yet know what it means to be in relationship with God. It means simply receiving the gift of salvation. While you were yet a sinner, even as I'm a sinner, and while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. You can receive the gift of salvation by praying a prayer similar to this one. Lord, you know what? I am separated from you. I feel like I want to be in relationship with you, but I don't know how. And there seems to be some kind of a wall that is between me. But this fella up here is telling me that you will receive me. Now you pray a prayer like that from your heart, the Lord hears that prayer. And I want to encourage you as we close out our time, if you need to get right with God through the work of his son, then do that. In your own words, pray a prayer similar to that. And if you are a Christian, and I suspect many of us are, I recognize your faces, I, I know you personally, and I've come to know your faith. If you are a Christian, please be reminded of the significance and the great consequence of the resurrection. This isn't something we should come back to once a year, but this is a thing that we are to walk in daily, reminding ourselves daily of the new life that is ours because of Christ Jesus. Meditate on it. Make it a part of who you are, how you live, how you think. And I believe the Lord will bless us as a result of doing so. Are you with me?
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that, for the reality of the resurrection. Lord, had, uh, had your son died, we would have been impressed. Wow. He would do that for others. But the story would have ended there. He would just be another martyr in the long list of people that have died for various causes. And yet he rose again. He conquered the grave. Death no longer had a sting over him or us. He was victorious. The debt is paid and it's been received. And we have a receipt to prove it. And so, Father, I pray for those with us today that may not yet know Christ, or maybe even this morning, you've begun to do a changing work in their hearts. Lord, I pray that they would experience having been received by you. Lord, you would flood their heart and their mind with a sense of your cleansing. Lord, you'd give them the courage and the faith to just cry out to you and say, I need you, God. I need you to cleanse me from the sin that separates me from you. And they would receive the gift of salvation, making it their own, applying it to their lives. And Father, for those of us here that do know you and have walked with you for weeks, months, years, decades, Lord, may the wonder of the resurrection fill our hearts afresh. May our hearts be enlarged to take in even more of an understanding of that which we thought we previously understood. Glorify yourself in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.